The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, there was a quote this week that came out of the Munich Security Conference. That's the big confab in Europe, where basically all the who's who from around the world, including China's top diplomat Wang Yi, went to, and a lot of news came out of it. It wrapped up this weekend in one of the final sessions, the Italian foreign minister, Antonio Tajani, he said a quote, which didn't get a lot of coverage in European media, but I'd like to get your take on it first before we get into our chat today. Uh, he said, quote, to leave Africa in Chinese hands is a big mistake for everybody here. And I think the reference to here was Europe, okay? Well, let's just say that I posted that on Twitter, and my goodness, the reaction from African Twitter to that was fierce and strong. And it speaks a lot to this question of narrative and how, in many ways, Europeans have not really moved on at all from this narrative that Africa is still a sphere of influence. It's a prize. It's something to be handed over among the great powers. And I don't get the sense that the Italian foreign minister or even the European press recognizes how incredibly tone deaf this is. Yes, I mean, it's impossible to not hear the ghosts of colonialism, you know, kind of when you hear that. But I think it's it, it goes further than Europe. I mean, we frequently hear U.S. officials also talking about losing the global south, you know, quote unquote, losing the global south to China. So that's, it's hardly only Europeans saying that, but there is definitely kind of like a bad kind of like hangover from either colonial times or kind of Cold War imperial times hanging over that comment. Yeah, it's hard to overstate how these types of comments from senior European officials, and let's not forget that Italy, I think, is the third largest economy in Europe. And it's a basket case beyond all imagination. And yet they are still talking about this kind of stuff. It's just, uh, the you know, apparently people who are listening to our show, Cobus, are having a drinking game that every time I say the word cognitive dissonance, they drink. And uh, that's becoming a theme on the program. And there's just a cognitive dissonance when you hear the Europeans talk about Africa. And, you know, we talked about that in one of our previous shows about the United States and Africa. So let's, uh, whoever's drinking to cognitive dissonance, there you go. So the other story that we're following this week is all the events surrounding debt and debt reconstruction and the restructuring of Sri Lanka and Zambia's debt in particular. All eyes are on India this week and in Bangalore, where the G20 finance ministers and central bank chiefs will meet later this week to discuss, among other things, the debt crisis in these countries. Now, one of the big problems, as regular listeners to this show will know, is the fact that the process in both Zambia and Sri Lanka has come to a screeching halt. It has had a very, very serious impasse. What's happening right now is that the main bilateral creditors can't seem to agree on the terms of the restructuring, and China is at the center of it. Now, the Paris Club lenders, 
that includes the United States, that includes the European powers and so forth, they are blaming the Chinese. The Chinese at the same time are turning around and blaming private creditors and multilateral development banks for not being willing to take the same losses or write downs or what the financial community calls a haircut. And until that is settled, nothing is happening. Well, the IMF this week started leaking to Bloomberg that it may bypass the Chinese and issue a $2.9 billion emergency finance package to Sri Lanka anyway. And this is absolutely fascinating, Cobus, because in many ways, the fact that the IMF is leaking this to Bloomberg in advance of the G20 finance ministers and central bank leaders meeting that's to happen is an indication to me that the IMF is not confident that an outcome will come from that meeting And therefore, they're trying to signal to the Chinese that if we don't get a deal that we like, we're going to move on without you. What it says, though, at the end of the day, is that these countries in the global south, Sri Lanka in particular, are standing at the edge of the abyss and need to have action fast one way or another. Yeah, I mean, the danger of of a country like Sri Lanka that's already so stretched, you know, the fully collapsing is, I don't think is is unrealistic, you know, while all of this dithering is going on. I mean, like, you know, in in relation to this issue of bypassing China, I have a thousand questions and, you know, kind of, and I hope that we'll be able to discuss it with with someone who knows more about these kind of arrangements than we do, you know, particularly in, in also questions in how it's going to relate to all of these other debt restructuring processes that China is also involved in. But yeah, the fact that the IMF seems to be leaking this to Bloomberg is interesting. Yeah. So it's not just Zambia and Sri Lanka that are facing difficulties. This week also, we're getting word that Ghana is going to face a critical deadline on Friday when it has to submit or pay a $40.6 million coupon on its Eurobond debt. And all predictions are that they're not going to meet that deadline. They've already said they're suspending payments on Eurobond debt. So there's no surprise if they don't make it. What will happen, though, is we'll formalize the fact that Ghana is in default. At the same time, earlier this, uh, what was it, earlier this year, back in January, Kenyan President William Ruto, he said, Kenya will not default on its debt. But yet we found out just a couple of weeks ago that, in fact, Kenya Airways, which is a state-owned enterprise, defaulted on about, I think it was 57 billion shillings, somewhere around $450 million worth of debt to the U.S. Exim Bank, not the China Exim Bank, the U.S. Exim Bank. So there's a default that's been registered in Kenya. All eyes, of course, now are looking now to Pakistan. Pakistan has about $100 billion of debt, 30 billion of which is owed to the Chinese. U.S. officials now are warning that they are concerned about the lack of transparency in the Chinese loan obligations in Pakistan. And here we go again with this opacity in the dealings. And I think this speaks to the broader issue, Cobus, that we've been dealing with since the beginning of this podcast. And everybody deals with the fact that it's very difficult to incorporate Chinese perspectives on some of these issues simply because the Chinese don't talk very much. Getting Chinese spokespeople to speak on the record getting Chinese banks to come on. For example, it would be impossible to get a representative of the China Exim Bank or the China Development Bank to join us or any media for that matter and say, what are you doing in Sri Lanka? What's the plan here? There's a lot of confusion about what are the Chinese objectives here? Do the Chinese want to take the World Bank and the IMF, the Bretton Woods institutions down a notch to reduce their influence? Maybe, we don't know. 
Do they want to build up their own multilateral development banks, the New Development Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, and, and create this parallel architecture that we've been talking about? Maybe. We don't know. Maybe it's just that they want their money back. That's it, pure and simple. They don't want to have any write-offs or because they want their cash back. And if there are write-offs, they want everybody to be treated fairly. Who knows? But this speaks to this broader issue of really struggling to understand what the Chinese thinking is and what the Chinese worldview on these issues are. So it's very interesting challenge, and it's one that I don't actually have an easy answer for how to overcome. As I've said many, many times on this program, we reach out almost every week. And Kobus, I did it this week to try and find a China-Iran scholar to join us to talk about the Iranian president's recent visit to Beijing. I reached out to two scholars at Fudan University who have written on this publicly, and I said, would you join us? And they said, no, I'm, I'm very sorry, I can't do it. No reason whatsoever. And it's not surprising in many respects, and we've had to deal with this for years, in part because the incentives for Chinese scholars and Chinese think tank analysts and others to appear in the media is very different than it is in the West. Kobus, maybe you can explain a little bit about some of the incentives for, say, a think tank scholar in London or Washington for why they are motivated, or even at the South African Institute of International Affairs where you are in Johannesburg, to do media appearances and to speak to the press. In general, you know, these analysts see media appearances as a way to increase their personal prominence, so it's good for their own careers, but it's also good for the, the record of their institution, um, and they frequently do kind of metrics at the end of at the end of the year to see you know kind of how proactive these researchers have been to get the work that they do for these institutions out into the world like beyond the kind of researcher community and you know it's it's seen as one way of tracking whether the research actually has any impact in the world obviously in china that just works differently you know kind of there is less interest in in whether things hit the the western media and there's just a kind of different different thinking about what impact means and so i think these researchers just as they have much less you know incentive to come onto international media platforms and a, a lot more possible issues related to that appearance yeah and it's not good for your career advancement in many chinese institutions that if you speak out and it's not fully aligned with the current thinking in China on a certain policy, you don't necessarily get praised for that. And in fact, you can have rather severe consequences. So it's not surprising that a lot of Chinese scholars, analysts, think tankers, when we approach them, say, you know what, I'd better not. So it was interesting to me that last December, at the end of the year, there was a column in the South China Morning Post that ran, China must embrace the global internet if it wants to reclaim its narrative. And the subheadline is, with a lack of Chinese voices to balance the narrative, anti-China rhetoric has gradually permeated Western-dominated digital spaces. And it's all about how Chinese think tank analysts, scholars, uh, you know, research institutions have to become more engaged in the discourse. And it was written by Wang Huiyao, who is the founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization, uh, which is a Beijing-based, uh, what they say, a non-governmental think tank. He, they describe themselves an independent think tank. You know, this is a very complicated area in China because there really isn't anything that's independent of the Communist Party. There really isn't anything that is a totally autonomous the way that the South African Institute of International Affairs is from the government. And so... 
it's a very complicated thing. Is it a an extension of the party? Is it part of the government? You know, I don't know if we need to get into that. Let's just say that generally speaking, Chinese think tanks align themselves with the party and rarely contradict the party. Nonetheless, when this column came out, I reached out to an intermediary, a mutual friend of mine and, and Wang Huayao's, and I said, if Huayao is thinking this way, can we have him on the show? We'd love to talk with him. And surprisingly enough, they turned around and said, yeah, sure, let's have him on. So we're like, okay, here we go. And this was a great opportunity because Dr. Wang has an opportunity to interact with senior level stakeholders, scholars, politicians from around the world, including the United States. And so he has this interesting perch into senior levels of the Communist Party. He follows the discourse in the US and Europe quite closely. And we thought it would be a great opportunity for us and for you to listen in to get a sense of what his worldview is. I will put forward the same disclaimer that I have any time we have a senior official on the show. And I consider Dr. Huang to be a senior official in this respect. Our show, as many of you know, is not a gotcha show or a confrontation show or just to try and get combative. We really want to give the guests a chance to speak. Not everything that the guests say is true. Not everything they say is accurate. But by letting them actually talk, we get to see how they think and see the world. And that's what we did with this interview. It's the same thing we've done with Molly Fee, the Assistant Secretary of State for the United States, and others as well. So in the course of the conversation, you may hear things that you don't agree with or you think are factually incorrect, and you're saying, why didn't Eric and Kobus challenge him on this and challenge him on that? That's not the point of what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to do is let them really have a chance to speak. And so you can kind of see where the gaps are or where the insights are, and it's an opportunity for us to better understand a little bit into what senior-level Chinese thinkers, thought leaders, and officials are thinking. So let's now take a listen to our discussion with Dr. Wang Huiyao, founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. Dr. Wang Huiyao, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Wang, you're speaking with us at a very interesting time when things are changing quite quickly around the world in terms of China's relationship, not only with the United States, but also with the global south. Some of the trends that we've been following over the past, say, year or so is the change in Chinese finance for developing countries, also the change domestically within China of the leadership. There's a lot going on. You have said repeatedly over the past couple of years, that China's foreign policy is misunderstood by the outside world. I think uh, back in 2022, you wrote that uh, Cold War framings are an unhelpful way to view power and security in the 21st century. You also wrote that 50 years ago, the leaders of China and America were able to put pragmatism over ideology to achieve a diplomatic breakthrough that served the interests of both countries. I think I'd like to start our conversation today with this idea of, is China's foreign policy misunderstood still to this day? And do you still believe that we're not entering a period of another Cold War? You know, first of all, thank you for raising that question. I think that uh, China's foreign policy is evolving as China develops. You know, China has developed uh, in the last four decades, you know, uh, 44 years now, uh, almost uh, since China opened up by uh, Deng Xiaoping in 1978. 
So 44 years ago that China developed uh, into a more engaging and a more developed country in the world now. And China now ranks the second largest economy and China contributes regularly to the one third of global GDP growth. And China actually uh, lifted 800 million people out of poverty. Uh, that represents uh, 70% of a poverty reduction during the same time, uh, which is also a, a decade uh, long ahead of the time of UN 2030 agenda. So those things, I think, uh, you know, China's foreign policy is reflecting that. And uh, China also launched the Belt and Road and, uh, you know, Global Development Initiative, Global Security Initiative, and China is getting more active internationally. But I think, you know, I think China's foreign policy reflects that. But of course, uh, people may really get used to what China used to be 20, 30 years ago, where is, uh, we kept a low profile, uh, very quiet and not very active internationally. Because as you can see, China's GDP has uh, doubled in the last 10 years, basically. So, so it, it certainly China has more trade interests. China now is the largest trade interest in 130 countries. And so China has a vested interest now in seeing a more active global engagement, more global uh, initiatives, more cooperation with uh, all countries, including US, EU, and, and many developed countries. So certainly China's foreign policy reflects that. But I think, you know, people probably, some people in the West think China was uh, too active, too assertive, uh, not quiet anymore. And uh, so China's foreign policy is more more assertive, and, and that is really uh, what has led to the uh, probably some misunderstanding, I would think. Uh, I would say that. Uh, so, so because also, on top of that, there's a three years of COVID isolation. There's no foreigners coming to China. No Chinese was able to go abroad. That has deepened the, the crisis of a misunderstanding. Not only, I think, while we probably uh, both ways too. So, so I think now, you know, the COVID is lifted, uh, zero COVID lifted, China started to open again. And uh, I hope the situation will get better. And then as we have more communication uh, exchanges and more dialogues, and then uh, China's foreign policy maybe have, will be better understood. And China also can understand better other countries' foreign policy as well. One of the misunderstandings that uh, struck me is, you know, as, as you were talking, you mentioned the, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and the Belt and Road Initiative. As we've seen the, the launch after, of the GDI and the GSI, many commenters in the West have, have said that they are essentially replacing the Belt and Road Initiative and that the Belt and Road Initiative is over. So, you know, kind of, for example, like, you know, the front page at the moment of Foreign Policy's website has a big article saying that the, that the Belt and Road Initiative has essentially come to an end. Um, so I was wondering what your perspective is on that and how we should see the relationship between the Belt and Road Initiative, the GDI, and the GSI. Yeah, I think this uh, it's related, but I don't think it's a replace each other. And first of all, I think Belt and Road Initiative was proposed about 10 years ago, and it's more connectivity-related. You know, they have infrastructure, you know, uh, and, and uh, a large component of that. And uh, China also has set up an Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and uh, China has actually signed MOUs, 130-some countries, plus uh, 20, 30 international organizations to work on the Belt and Road. So I think Belt and Road is still, uh, is still involved. It, 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 is, has, it has achieved some success. Uh, basically, it's is largely uh, project-oriented. It's largely development-oriented. So I think the, you know, that, that China, for example, in the Belt and Road uh, countries, uh, there's a lot of projects, there's, there's a railway project, like in ASEAN countries we see 
project in Indonesia, in Thailand, in Malaysia, and then in, in Laos and, and, and Cambodia and, and countries like that. We see projects in Central Asia, in Eastern Europe, and we see it across the China uh, the European uh, Transcontinental Railway has actually doubled, tripled <laughs> uh, many times in the, in the past number of years. And the, the cargoes and the goods reach the Europe. We see the port in, in Greece and uh, also in many other countries, you know, railway in Africa, mining project and uh, uh, subway stadiums and uh, health uh, facilities. So so it's really, I would classify Belt and Road as more project-related and actually benefiting developing countries and also uh, countries connected. Whereas uh, uh, China Global uh, Development Initiative is that uh, it's more like uh, responding to the uh, 2030 uh, Global Agenda, Sustainable Agenda by put forward by the UN. 2030 Sustainable Agenda. So there's a development uh, initiative there. So it's calls for more policy coordination, I would say, among the countries, how they can better uh, shape their joint efforts, how they can really reflect uh, 17 SDG uh, development goals, how they can really, China can help on in that respect. Of course, uh, Belt and Road is related with Global Development Initiative, but I don't think it's, uh, the two uh, Global Development Initiative is replacing Belt and Road. <laughs> Uh, because uh, China is going to hold its uh, third uh, Belt and Road Summit this year. So you can see Belt and Road still is not, not uh, losing steam. It's still uh, charged on. It's still uh, it's improving. You know, I would like to say we should really put Belt and Road more uh, multilized. For example, we should, instead of a more bilateral MOU, we should get more multilateral involvement. We should have a steering committee composed of the Belt and Road countries, we should have a Belt and Road Secretariat Office. We should have an annual Belt and Road Forum, not only held in China, but also held uh, in the Belt and Road countries. And also, let's get uh, AIB and uh, World Bank, ADB, FDB, all those developed banks work together to really get some co-financing and uh, joint development and, uh, and let's push the infrastructure project, which is uh, needed by the many countries. So, so I really see two as a one is more project-related but we can upgrade more, more modernized, and the other one is more policy-related, but also more uh, in line with the UN objective and how we can coordinate all the countries in discussing how we can improve uh, the joint efforts to approach that. But one of the challenges for the Belt and Road, and I see this as being a problem if you want to make it more multilateral, is the lack of transparency in Chinese financing and Chinese projects. And we've seen the the loan contracts, uh, hundreds of the loan contracts that have been made available, secretly, by the way, then they have very strict non-disclosure clauses. We see a fight in Kenya in the Supreme Court right now where China Road and Bridge Corporation is fighting very hard to make sure that the terms of the contract for the Standard Gauge Railway remain secret. We still don't know the extent of the loan portfolio in Sri Lanka, and this is across the world the case. If the Belt and Road was to coordinate with the AIIB, which, by the way, has committed to international standards of transparency and for the most part is fulfilling that commitment, how do you reconcile China's insistence on secrecy and opacity in its dealings with developing countries involved in Belt and Road financing and the need to be more transparent and open up, which is a demand that not only international bodies like the World Bank and the IMF have, but also taxpayers who pay the bills for a lot of these loans in places like Kenya and Sri Lanka. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that uh, Belt and Road is, is still evolving. I, it's, still, it's not perfect. It's not uh, is already uh, taking a fixed shape already. It's still developing. 
That's why I was proposing, you know, why we can modernize a bit of button roll. That's why I was proposing that uh, AIB and World Bank and uh, and AFDB, ADB, uh, European banks, maybe all the best practice be practiced uh, in those projects. Uh, at least we can take some project, maybe uh, even Belt and Road, uh, BI and the B3W and EU Global Gate, we can, uh, can jointly cooperate. So that's why I really hope that we can get uh, collaborate that. So, uh, yeah, there's some problem. I mean, I, I, I don't uh, say it's, it's already perfect, but uh, uh, there's still, uh, you know, uh, shortcomings and, uh, and uh, uh, maybe there's a problem in certain project. But by and large, in general, I think the Belt and Road project has been welcomed by the developing countries. And China could also uh, upgrade on that. That's why I think we need a, a Belt and Road, uh, you know, summit uh, conference uh, this year to really, uh, you know, really summarize what has gone right and what has gone wrong. And, and like we have the second Belt and Road uh, summit in Beijing a few years back, there was, a, you know, a lot of financing Standards were discussed. Uh, a lot of uh, best practice was discussed. So, so certainly we need to prove that. But I don't think you know so-called uh, debt trap and and those things are, are widely uh, spread. No, no, no yeah, one yeah. said anything about the debt trap. Just to be very clear, but people are upset about the lack of transparency. And I'm just maybe you can help us understand why is it that. Chinese stakeholders at all levels, and you have a very deep understanding of the Chinese policymaking process and Chinese leadership and and Chinese values in terms of these foreign policy objectives. Why is secrecy such a paramount objective here? And and is there not a sense that Chinese policy banks and, and the Chinese government sees that that secrecy ultimately harms its ability to build goodwill in countries around the world? Yeah, no, and I, I, I think there's a, I, I don't know the, the detail of the project referred to, but I think, you know, certainly the company and, uh, I mean, government does not, does not encourage secrecy. And, uh, and, you know, even for CCG, uh, my think tank, we were actually, uh, I, I would welcome China to join the Paris uh, Club and, and also that, uh, you know, that uh, discussion among the G20 countries and uh, things like that. So, so let's get to some, uh, you know, common standards to work. That's why China has set up AIB, which exactly followed the World Bank model and, and charter. So, so I think that, uh, you know, that's why we did this Belt and Road uh, Summit and to, to discuss what has been uh, uh, done right and what has, uh, needs to be improved. And certainly, uh, we need more uh, financing, transparency. Uh, we need more, you know, uh, more in the cooperation uh, according to the guidelines and the standards. So, you know, those things are, are really, I think, more and more will be encouraged by the Chinese government because I think right now they, they you know maybe certain companies uh, problem does not reflect the whole situation and that may be case by case but we we certainly would encourage uh, more transparency and more rule based uh, you know uh, international World Bank or uh, UN based kind of a practice that's been practiced more and more and also SDG 2030 agenda of UN. Uh, standards should be applied. So, so I, I, I would have no problem with that because uh, China is also highly uh, supportive of UN uh, development goals and UN standards and UN SDG 2030 agenda. So let's practice the best and uh, trying to overcome all those challenges and difficulties. As you mentioned at the top, China is looking 
you know, to reform some aspects of the global system to also reflect it, you know, the the, the size of its economy and the global influence of its economy. So we, we're seeing at the moment, you know, some kind of disagreements between China and the International Monetary Fund and World Bank about debt reforms and, you know, whether these, these multilateral development banks should take losses in, in debt reforms. So I was wondering what some of the big areas are that China would like to see reforms in? Like, you know, kind of which particular kind of aspects of global governance reform would China focus on? Well, I think there's a quite a few, you know, uh, areas. I've, I, I can't speak for the country, but at least from my think tank, I, I would say that uh, I'd like to see more uh, development banks work together. You know, like World Bank is always a leading uh, global infrastructure and development bank. And, and more maybe diversify into more green and more uh, sustainable development. But infrastructure, China probably is the best, you know, achieved uh, countries in the world. For example, China has built two thirds of a global speed railway now, and connecting anywhere in China within a few hours. And uh, so, so I think that development, you know, the initiative infrastructure uh, needs should be really connected uh, with all the other banks. I would also like to see uh, Belt and Road Initiative, BI, can be really working with B3W, Build Back Better World, and, and also the new gateway project. So, so why can't we have those uh, international development banks, like including AIB, to work together or have a consortia to set, set up some good examples uh, in you know, implementing projects in different countries, like AIB. I mean, the biggest uh, loan disbursement is India, you know I mean? Even though China, India has some problem, so so I I think that you know this is really important. We have a, a more cooperation among those uh, professionals, professional banks, to really break the the, the impasse of this uh, you know political uh, geopolitical tensions. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think you know on that issue, we should really uh, probably work uh, uh, with the G20 and uh, let's get some special uh, discussion on that. And China has largely has done well. I mean, China, you know, I remember China-African uh, Cooperation Summit. China uh, has announced many times China has, uh, you know, uh, forgive or, 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 you know, really uh, give up many, many loans and uh, and uh, repayment. And China has has uh, has done quite a few times and and uh, forgiven a large number of debt that uh, that China used to own. So, so I think you know, let's have some international coordination on that. Let's. Let's see who does the best and who does most and maybe have uh, some good practice on that and exchange the experience and set up uh, some joint applications. Also, you know, how to fight climate change. Uh, what about developed countries' contributions uh, to help developed countries to achieve their uh, climate change uh, initiatives and things like that? There's many things can be done, but we, I think we, what we are facing now <clears throat> is multilateral system is weakening with U.S., is, uh, with particularly during the Trump era. Uh, creating WHO, creating UNESCO, <laughs> threaten the WTO, apply the body, and and we we see that is not really making a lot of uh, you know help. China would like to see China actually is eager to jump more uh, support WTO multilateral system. China uh, joined the RCEP, the largest free trade agreement in Asia. China applying for CPTPP, which is designed by the US. Even US abandoned CPTPP. China wants to join that. China is applying to join DIPA, and China is working with uh, African countries on, on African summit, with Arab countries on Arab summit, uh, with Central Asia, Latin America. So China is, and, and with ASEAN too. So, I mean, on the economic front, China is doing all those things, trying to strengthen the cooperation. So I think we need more geopolitically 
friendly relations. You know, rather than we have a lot of security, you know, we have uh, five eyes, we have NATO expanding, we have uh, CRUD, which is aimed at China, we have AUKUS, which is aimed at China, and IPAF, you know, IP uh, India Pacific Economic Framework. This is economic framework, but it's excluding China. You know, why not allow China to be part of that? And China is interested to join that uh, if it's economic related. So, so I think there's a, there's a, we need to solve those uh, geopolitical tensions, put aside all those security military alliances against each other, and then let's concentrate on the, on the economic framework, economic alliance, and economic cooperation to help the global south and help and utilize the uh, uh, you know organization like World Bank, AIB, and 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 ADB to, to really uh, lead the development of the world. So so there's many things can be done. It's complicated. Yeah, I guess I'm a little surprised about your optimism that outside of the geopolitical framework and the security framework, that there's possibilities in the economic framework. The head of the IMF was on 60 Minutes, the most popular news program in the United States, calling China and accusing China of being a roadblock in the debt restructuring process. David Malpass, the president of the World Bank, has said for more than a year now that China is slowing the process. It's China's fault. We see Julie Chung, the ambassador in Sri Lanka for the United States, accusing China of being a spoiler in the debt process. Where does the optimism come from right now that the United States, China, and even the Paris Club and the multilaterals can somehow work together when all we're seeing and coming back from the, you know, that the the embassy in Sri Lanka, the Chinese embassy in Sri Lanka now is famous for these very aggressive Twitter rebuttals to the U.S. ambassador. I mean, it doesn't look like there's a lot of room for collaboration and cooperation right now. Well, that's exactly what I mean. I mean, uh, you know, we need to have a better uh, political, geopolitical environment. Rather than bashing China, decoupling China, sanctioning China, on the one hand, and on the other hand, looking China, you know, for, for all those uh, other initiatives to be more forthcoming. It doesn't really synchronize. You know, you, you need to really, we need to improve this clear political and uh, uh, climate, and and of course the have some atmosphere of cooperation. Like we had a big uh, uh, President Biden presidential meeting at the G20 at the Bali, but now we have a big setback now. So so I think you know we need to probably really going forward for this political you know consensus and agreement, and then of course we need a high level talks. We're not just talking over you know uh, the the space and talking talking over each other rather than talking face-to-face to each other. I think we need more of that. China definitely is willing, I mean, and, 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 and eager to collaborate and to work. Rather, we're having a lot of media uh, criticizing on each other and then, you know, uh, kind of uh, argument over the media. But let's, let's really focus on some meetings, on some constructive uh, multilateral platform. There's no multi, multilateral platform that we kind of reasonably talking about on the trade, on the economic, on the debt, on those issues. I mean, we haven't seen any multilateral platform playing, you know, roles, constructive role to bring the parties together. On the other hand, we are seeing a lot of uh, uh, campaigning on ideology. We are seeing that, uh, you know, the autocracy versus democracy, those simplifying the, the world. We see a lot of those things. So so it's in, it's a difficult climate uh, that China can engage dialogues with with uh, professionals on, on, on the more practical level and more global standard level to talk about. So I think we need to really improve the uh, political environment in order to achieve the economic uh, better uh, environment. Well, hopefully the G20 forum is going to be the place where 
the finance ministers and later on the heads of state will have that opportunity to have those types of exchanges. Because if it's not at the G20, you're right, Dr. Wang, I don't know where we're going to do this. Kobus, last question for you. Well, your, your research center focuses on globalization, and we've recently seen a lot of kind of criticism of globalization um, and a lot of uh, talk of the reversal of globalization. So I was wondering where you see globalization now and, and in the 2020s, and what role China is going to play in that? No, I think that, uh, that you know, the globalization is a mega trend and uh, is uh, the tide that uh, nobody can stop that. Of course, globalization has setbacks. It may zigzag, you know, may, they may have a, a twist and turns, but but I think the big trend is the globalization will continue. We are totally intertwined. People already reap the benefits of globalization. Nobody wants to go back to the old days of uh, primitive days of uh, the, the law of a jungle and then uh, really survive the fittest. So we have to really have more inclusive globalization. But I think globalization needs improvement. More dialogues, more uh, exchanges, and of course more achievement if we can achieve on that. On the other hand, I think that, uh, you know, uh, my center, you know, Center for China Globalization, we sat about 15 years ago. We had the largest, uh, one of the largest non-government think tank. You know, we, we are founded largely by private sectors. Our objective is to become a bridge and a platform for globalization and China and also to, to welcome the world to China and to really promote China to the outside world. So that's exactly what I'm doing. You know, we, we've been dialogue with many Western opinion leaders, uh, international organizations, UN. Uh, we've been really more focused on uh, globalization studies, and uh, we want to promote China more open, more liberalized. And that, that is a way we promote also more talent. We want to attract more foreign talent to China, and China goes global too. So, so I think globalization, you know, is, is a globalization of, uh, of the people, globalization of the goods, globalization of the uh, technology, globalization of the consensus, you know, who we've been building on. Uh, for example, now people all say, okay, infrastructure is ready. We all know we need that. Uh, climate change is a consensus. So I think globalization promotes consensus. And that's where exactly we're doing. We, we release reports. We, we hold discussions, ambassador roundtables. We encourage China to open, to lift the zero COVID. I published the op-ed in uh, in. Uh, in last July, you know, during the midst of a zero COVID, I said, you know, we need to open and welcome more global talent. So I think there's many things that, uh, you know, our center is doing, I think, uh, surrounded by globalization. We published uh, a book series. I added to the, a series of books that include the China and, and globalization book series published by Springer Nature. And uh, there's many, we, we, we published ambassadors, uh, 27 ambassadors book. We have uh, multinationals, uh, chambers, heads, and uh, AmChan, European chambers. We have uh, uh, scholars like Kishu Malbani, Joseph Nye, and, and many other scholars' uh, books on that. So, so we are really an uh, open window for the world. And I hope that globalization, uh, the momentum will continue, even though it's not an easy path. But, uh, but I think the, the future of globalization is still quite uh, bright, and we, we are cautiously optimistic for that. And I hope China can make some contribution to the inclusive globalization with the rest of the world, with U.S., uh, EU, and Africa, and uh, Global South, and all the countries together.
Well, we certainly appreciate your time today, and uh, we really value your opinions and just the opportunity to hear from you. So we hope that we can continue this discussion with you over the years ahead. And uh, and again, appreciate your optimism. It's something we don't hear very often today in the China Global South and China U.S. relationship. So it is encouraging. Uh, Dr. Wang Huiyao is the founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization, an independent think tank in Beijing. Dr. Wang, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the exchanges. Thank you. Well, it's in a recent episode that we did on U.S. mining in Africa, and we showcased some senior State Department officials and their speeches in South Africa at the mining in Daba that took place in January or February of this year. I said there's a certain cognitive dissonance when you listen to U.S. diplomats talk about their role in the world and also when they talk about China and whatnot. And again, you're just kind of like, wow, the reality and the rhetoric do not align at all. And that was part of what I was thinking about in the conversation with Dr. Wong, in the sense that so much of what he's talking about, this cooperation and this sense that we can work together and the sense that, you know, that the BRI is evolving to be more transparent, or it should be, and that the United States with B3W or now PGII and, you know, Global Gateway can all cooperate and collaborate together. And you're thinking to yourself, like, Really? I mean, like, again, the IMF chief was on 60 Minutes calling out China. David Malpass is calling out China. And it just seems like, I don't get it. I'm, and I'm just struggling to kind of understand that. I mean, did you also feel that, that disconnect? Um, yes, to a certain extent. I mean, he was speaking in a kind of a future sense, you know, kind of so, so it's like kind of like calling for things to to move in that direction including calling for you know for greater transparency for example in in chinese projects and you know and and kind of greater collaboration between between these different you know banks for example so all of those things i think that i think in in terms of wanting those things to happen i think you know is his kind of future orientation is shared by by many other people and which is the role by the way of a think tank of course i mean a think tank is designed to be ahead of what government is doing and to try and pull government in certain directions. So in many ways, to your point, that's what he's supposed to be doing, to say maybe the current trajectory is not good, you need to go down this path. I just don't see how we get there in the current environment that we're in, but I, I see your point. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, so, so you know, it, and, and think tanks also tend to be policy focused, right? Kind of like looking like they, they, tend to, they tend to look for policy solutions to current problems. They tend to have less to say, you know, depending on the think tank on, you know, about some of the kind of political realities that are currently holding back the cooperation, you know, and, 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 and in that sense, I think there are very, very powerful political realities on both sides of, of the equation. You know, the, the U.S. policymakers face very strong pressure, anti-China pressure in the U.S. at the moment. And there's, there's, you know, I think a certain amount of similar kind of pressure on Chinese officials. And then, you know, you have when, so, so you have this kind of like one step forward, three steps back situation, you know, as we've seen around the, the recent controversy about the, the, the big, um, you know, surveillance balloon you know that that was kind of flying over the US so you know any of any of that kind of that kind of incident which then kind of triggers a lot of of, of press optic issues you know in, in on both sides then whole like pushes back any kind of meeting as we saw with the, with the cancellation of Anthony Blinken's you know trip to China in you know in response to the balloon problem so you know so so the the actual working together on the ground is cons 
constrained by a bunch of, of factors that that think tanks don't necessarily focus on because they they are looking at these kind of like big policy focused kind of long trajectories. Yeah, I mean, and and, and I can imagine that some listeners to the show who were kind of thinking when he was going through the laundry list of transgressions that the United States and its allies have done to China. And again, you hear this theme of victimization, that the world is unfair to China. And again, he doesn't speak about the fact that, well, there are warships off the coast of Indonesia, you know, that China itself has done nothing to provoke this. And China is the victim. And that's a longstanding theme in Chinese narratives. And again, it to me, it's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance in terms of, you know, how the U.S. sees itself in the world. And then we're hearing again how the Chinese see themselves. And I, again, from the reality, I really struggle to kind of reconcile with it. I can imagine that a lot of our listeners were going through that list and saying, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And it's hard to have these kind of conversations because we really want to let these folks speak and not interrupt them at every two minutes to kind of say, but wait, what? What are you doing here? What are you doing there? And it was great to let him kind of make his piece. It's up to you, the listener, to go out and to fact check as to whether or not you agree with him, disagree with him. Um, the one point that I did want to bring up was the fact that when he talked about debt relief in Africa, he was talking about the zero grant, the zero interest loans, and those are the grants. And that accounts for less than, I think, three or 4% of China's total loan portfolio in Africa. So it is not a significant debt relief that China has provided in Africa. Just that was the only fact check I really wanted to bring up in this conversation. Sure, there are many other points that people can contest. And when we've had US officials on, people have said the same thing. So that's not kind of what we're trying to do with this show. We really do want to let people like Dr. Wong speak, just as we did with Molly Fee, who's the top US diplomat for Africa at the State Department, let her speak. And then again, we can try and figure out what's what uh, afterwards. But these are tough interviews to do, I think. I mean, I really feel more pressure on these interviews than I do with any other kind that we do. Yeah, also because these people kind of kindly give us their time, but they also face very high stakes, you know, kind of both on the Chinese and the US sides. You know, so they, they face certain kind of political realities, again, on both sides, you know, that means that they speak in a different way than researchers do, for example. You know, so that's the kind of role of the program, I think, is, is, to, is to maximize a wide range of voices. Yeah. So, well, we are always looking for more Chinese voices because we feel there's not enough balance in our coverage of China and the Global South, in part because it's hard to get Chinese analysts, scholars, think tank personnel to come on the show. What's interesting is that the original idea for this interview was in response to an article or a column that Dr. Wang wrote for the South China Morning Post, where he says that stakeholders in China need to be more proactive in engaging the global internet and the global discussion on China. Ironically, we didn't have time to get to that because there were so many other things we wanted to talk with him about. But I give Dr. Wang credit for actually talking the talk and walking the walk. Because when he wrote that column, I contacted an intermediary of ours, a mutual acquaintance, and I said, if Dr. Wong feels this way, can we have him on the show? And they turned around and said, yeah, sure. And I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't expect that. So I'm hoping that this is a precursor to lots of other Chinese stakeholders to come and join us and to have these conversations. Because you and I both know that we're on so many panels, and we are guilty of this as well, where we talk about 
China and the world and don't have any Chinese stakeholders. And that's a problem. There's no doubt that's a problem. Not everybody may agree with what they say, but you can't have a discussion about China and the world without actually talking to Chinese officials, Chinese analysts, and Chinese scholars, and all forms of Chinese stakeholders. So for me, I am grateful, again, that Dr. Wong came on the show, and I think it's important, and we try really, really, really hard to get Chinese folks to come and talk with us, and even though 99% of the time we're unsuccessful. Yeah, I mean, Chinese academics and, and researchers face a lot of pressures, you know, and, and also they don't really, you know, unlike Western counterparts, they don't necessarily get much career kind of benefit from outward kind of Western press engagement, you know, that's the, the, the different kind of career metrics at play in the, in the Chinese system. And, you know, and, you know, it's, it's people get into people that are, can easily be put into a, a difficult position, you know, in having to respond to the controversial questions that we tend to ask. So, you know, so, so I can see where they're coming from, but it is a problem in, in terms of like the global understanding of where China is coming from. Okay, let's leave the conversation there, Kobus. We'll pick it up again, of course, next week on another edition of the China Global South podcast. Of course, if these are the kinds of issues that you're interested in, you'll definitely want to sign up for our daily newsletter that goes out every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Just go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe, and you'll get full access to our website. You'll also, of course, get the daily brief every morning at 6 a.m. in D.C. time. So that'll do it for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.